0: Welcome to another episode of An Offer You Can't Refuse. I'm your host, Ryan S. Pettengill, and today we're going to discuss the emergence of the modern American mafia. As we'll soon see, the rampant violence that was plaguing centers like Chicago proved to be bad for business, and it prompted younger, up-and-coming gangsters like Charlie Lucky Luciano to fundamentally rethink the structure of organized crime in America. The new structure that would emerge would come to be known as the Commission and it would define organized crime for the next several decades. I think that you'll find this episode interesting on its face value, but there's so much more at work here. If you think back to the beginning of this series, I told you that studying the history of organized crime lent itself to other historical contexts as well as other academic disciplines. In this episode today, we'll see the convergence of economic history in the United States, criminology, inter-ethnic relations in the early to mid-20th century, and modern forms of business management. So as you can see, we've got a lot to get to here today, so let's get down to it. I'm going to begin our conversation today in Atlantic City at what will come to be known as the Atlantic City Conference now if you're a regular on the series you might have heard me mention this incident uh, before and if you're wondering why Atlantic City is pretty simple that is the home turf of Nucky Johnson Johnson controlled everything which made it very easy to conduct business more or less out in the open and he took care of everything But the overarching purpose of the conference was to find a way to dial down the violence and make for a smoother operation for organized crime. And to that end, there's a really obvious problem. The problem, in fact, had a name. It was known as Al Capone. And the solution that both Johnny Torrio as well as Charlie Luciano are going to come up with is we've got to find a way to get Al to go away for a while. Now, it's not really what you're thinking. They're they're not necessarily suggesting that Capone get knocked off or anything like that. What they wanted to do is to step out of the public spotlight, at least for the moment. So there's a popular myth that Capone actually purposefully got caught with a concealed handgun that was not registered after the conference had let out when he was staying in Philadelphia. Now it is true that Capone was arrested uh, on gun charges in Philly in the aftermath of the AC meeting and he actually did serve a nine-month sentence but Capone did not willingly take this fall. Um, the incident however did take public pressure off of organized criminals, at least to some extent. And what it's going to allow them to do is establish a momentary truce. But many historians consider this conference to be the starting point of the modern-day mafia. So with this in mind, let's talk about some of the individuals who will emerge as leaders after the conclusion of the AC meeting. The first person you need to know about, as far as that goes, is Charles... Charlie lucky Lucania. Now later, uh, Charlie will change his name to Luciano, but for the time being, his family name is Lucania. and he's arguably the, the most important name in the history of organized crime, and he's absolutely central in what would come to be known as the Commission. The Lucania family was a product of the wave of immigration that hit American shores in the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1906 the family emigrated from Sicily and they're going to settle in the lower east side little Italy district of New York and like other Italians the Lucanias were vulnerable to the exploitation of their fellow countrymen, the organization calling itself the Black Hand and it was on more than one occasion that Charlie witnessed uh, the humiliation of his father. And that's sort of his introduction into the world of organized crime. But uh, Luciano is very quickly going to prove to be not only smart, but also tough. And that combination is not hanging out on every street corner. It's not often that you get a guy that's bright as well as tough at the same time. And that was not lost on more established gangsters like Joe Masseria or Arnold Rothstein. But the early 20th century Lower East Side was rife with crime and violence. And there were mobs on top of mobs, and violence really was endemic throughout the era. Luciano began running around with Paul Kelly's notorious Five Points gang as a young adolescent. And similar to Al Capone, Luciano's gonna start out as a semi legitimate adolescent, um, I don't know, businessman but he's soon going to take to crime, especially illegal gambling. After coming into the orbit of the Five Points Gang, Luciano will establish his own criminal organization, and he's going to begin shaking down other ethnic youth criminals for protection fees. Later on, he's going to develop interest in the narcotics trade as well as the booming prostitution industry of New York. But another name that you're going to need to know, and that's going to emerge as a key player within the commission, is Meyer Lansky. Meyer Suchlonsky was born in 1902 in what is now considered Belarus, but what at the time was Tsarist Russia. And this period, the early 20th century, is a time of intense and in some cases state-sponsored anti-Semitism and these Tsarist pogroms uh, convinced the Suchlowski family to leave their homeland. In 1909, his father is going to leave, and he'll be followed by the rest of the family a couple years later in 1911. Eventually, the family would adopt the more Americanized name, Lansky. Meyer hadn't been in the United States very long before he bumped into what would become one of his closest friends and business associates, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Now, in Yiddish, the term bugs means crazy, and Benny was known to fly off the handle, and he was prone to wild bouts of violence, and so he just acquired the nickname Bugs or Bugsy He's crazy. Now, l- let me say this, you and I know him as Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, but nobody called him Bugsy to his face if you know what I'm talking about. Later on, Lansky and Luciano would, l- would use Siegel's Rage as the enforcement wing of the commission, and if you stay with me, you'll see what I'm talking about once we get to Murder Incorporated. But for the moment, uh, Lansky and Siegel are going to develop not only a friendship, but a business partnership. It's pretty simple. Siegel stole cars, cars throughout New York City, especially trucks. Lansky fixed them up, chopped them up, you might say, and then the two of them sold the uh, merchandise to bootleggers who used them as cheap vehicles to smuggle, smuggle liquor throughout New York City. Now, it wasn't long before Lansky bumped into what would become yet another lifelong friend and criminal associate, Charlie Luciano. You have to understand that Lansky was essentially operating in what Luciano considered to be his turf and as an order of respect Luciano expected uh, Lansky to pay him a tribute for protection and keep in mind Luciano had kind of established himself as that sort of entrepreneur in that part of New York at that time. Well, for his part, Lansky just refused, and Luciano and his uh, associates badly beat the smaller, slighter Lansky, but uh, Lansky remained defiant. He always put up a valiant fight uh, before inevitably succumbing to the stronger Luciano and his henchmen. But it was this defiance that it really ingratiated Lansky to Luciano, and it won him Charlie's respect. The two went on to become lifelong friends, and their criminal worlds began to converge. What came to be known as the Luciano-Lansky gang was uniquely American. It was grounded in the European experience with immigration. It imposed self-segregation upon itself, but ultimately gave way to the inevitable ethnic intermixing. But the Lower East Side in that neighborhood was owned by Joe Masseria. And one of Masseria's uh, henchmen is a guy by the name of Francesco Castiglia. Uh, You know him as Frank Costello. Costello at this particular moment is a 22 year old henchman and an operative for Joe Masseria. And he's soon going to form an alliance with Luciano. Now I want to tell you a quick legend so that we can get up to speed as far as how this friendship and alliance is going to take place. The legend involves the pulling of teeth, and it was said that uh, one of Mazaria's debtors was cornered but he just simply couldn't pay up. And while discussing the matter with him, Joe noticed that the man had some gold teeth and Costello was ordered to yank the man's teeth out, A, a very grisly job as you can imagine. Well, according to the legend, Luciano and Lansky had actually witnessed this shakedown and they saw Costello's dilemma and they offered to help. And this help, yanking the guy's teeth, is going to solidify a new generation of gangsters. Costello's going to begin running a de facto crew and he's going to pick up the crumbs from Masseria. He's also going to bring in a new name, a guy by the name of Vito Genovese, a low-level gangster reputed to be the toughest guy in all of New York and an importer of Sicilian opium. It's really going to be Genovese that's going to help transform Luciano's crew into a legitimate gang. Now, to be clear, Lansky is the brains of the operation. Think of him sort of as the accountant. You've got Siegel. He's the enforcer and Costello has all the connections. What they needed was a big break and Prohibition did offer this opportunity, but the problem here is that Masseria owns most of the territory that they're trying to do business. And it's in this context that we're going to see Charlie Lucky making his bones. Now, again, if you're this deep into the series, my guess is you've seen films like The Godfather. And in that film, uh, you're going to see the mainstreaming of this notion that to become a member of the club, you had to make your bones. And, of course, what we're driving at there is she had to kill somebody. <music> As I've alluded to heretofore, the Luciano-Lansky contingent had found a niche in the smaller, more petty elements of crime in New York City. Going all the way back to their adolescent years, Lansky's crew had knocked off trucks which would then be sold to bootleggers. But in an attempt to make a splash and and score some some quick but serious cash, the Luciano crew is gonna hijack a liquor truck and, and they're gonna pull it off but with one very serious problem. It belonged to Joe Masseria. Now, Luciano and company realize their mistake pretty quickly and they decide to try to return the merchandise to Joe and make a profound apology. But according to legend, this apology was not quite enough to assuage Masseria's hurt feelings. And according to this legend, Masseria's thugs beat the daylights out of Luciano and were on the verge of killing him. And begging for his life, uh, Charlie promised to do whatever Joe needed to be done to make things right. Again, much of this is legend, but this involved killing a big-time Masseria rival, a guy by the name of Umberto Valenti. Luciano agreed, and, and some allege that it was in the aftermath of this incident that people started calling Luciano lucky. The Valenti-Masseria conflict went all the way back to the late teens, early 1920s, and it involved territorial disputes amongst Italian gangs in New York. Taking Valenti out would certainly position Masseria as the preeminent force in the area, at at least within the Italian community, but pushing him out would require some delicacy and some finesse. So in August 1922, Luciano and his crew are going to stalk Valenti to this cafe in Little Italy, and they're in the car, and Luciano's going to exit the getaway car, And he's going to cut him down. He's going to cut Valenti down in a hail of bullets. It's going to kill him in the streets of New York. But in the aftermath uh, of this killing, all was forgiven by Masseria, who, who was beginning to become known as Joe the Boss. So killing Valenti endeared Luciano and company to Masseria, which proved to be both a blessing and a curse. Joe's going to place Luciano in charge of a newly emerging racket, uh, and I'm talking about the heroin trade. As we've mentioned, the 1914 Narcotics Tax Act created an instant demand for what was now illegal contraband. Later in the 1930s, Luciano would be central in the establishment of what is going to be called the French Connection an elaborate heroin smuggling network whereby drugs originating in southeastern Asia made their way to Turkey and then the French-occupied Mediterranean island Corsica and eventually into the United States. I mentioned this in a previous episode, but the drug trade made bootlegging look like small potatoes and innovators like Arnold Rothstein quickly recognized the potential in it simultaneously Luciano begins to dabble in prostitution rackets and he's going to attempt to merge the two industries by devising a way to recruit and employ prostitutes who could then sell drugs to clients and uh, drug addicts alike but for his part Luciano in that sense was way ahead of his time and was quickly becoming one of Masseria's top earners but he had not learned AR's cardinal rule, always have a buffer. In 1923, federal agents are gonna catch Lucky in the act of delivering cocaine and opium to one of uh, their, their federal informants. And in the aftermath, is gonna be sentenced to six months in the Atlanta federal prison. And it dawns on him while he's in prison that he's taking all the risk not only is he doing most of the work, but he's taken on all the risk, and here he is to prove it to himself in prison. Meanwhile, Masseria has virtually no risk, and he's reaping pretty much all of the reward. I think you can see where this conversation is going. Meyer Lansky is going to run the gang while Luciano is on the inside in Atlanta. Um, But in that time, Lansky's going to become sort of a favorite son of Arnold Rothstein. And as I've mentioned before, Rothstein's really the master of plausible deniability. We know that Rothstein profited from bootlegging, but he didn't want to run bootlegging, just profit from it. So he sort of outsourced the job of the day-to-day operation to somebody else. He didn't want a hand in the drug trade, he just wanted to profit from it. So when it comes to how the logistics ran on a weekly basis, that was the job of people like Charles Luciano. Even if you're talking about the Black Sox scandal, Rothstein's able to keep a safe distance while letting other people, like Abe Attell, do his dirty work by showing up at a hotel with a bag of cash paying off Chicago's players. Anyway, as Luciano, Lansky, and Costello were charged with basically running Rothstein's operation in New York, they were quickly becoming recognized as legitimate gangsters throughout the underworld. As an example, this wasn't lost on Masseria, who quickly made Luciano one of his top lieutenants. By that point, Luciano was one of Masseria's top earners, so why not? But for Luciano, the problem was that he was still under the control of Joe the Boss. Luciano was hardly alone when it came to you know, young Turks coming of age in Prohibition-era New York City. We'll talk about Dutch Schultz and Charlie Adonis. Uh, we'll later talk about Albert Anastasia, Carlo Gambino, and many many others, but in one meaningful way or another, AR is going to serve as a mentor to these up-and-comers, demonstrating to them the proper way to conduct business. Again, a quick example, uh, Rothstein's going to instruct uh, all of his students, if you want to call them that, uh, to only sell top-shelf liquor. Don't don't involve yourself with this rot gut that's being produced in people like Masseria's bathtubs and in these basement distilleries. He's also going to teach his students to sort of dress the part, uh, show up not only in a suit but a, a finely tailored three-piece suit, and probably most importantly of all, Um, make the right connections. Now, you'll see what I'm talking about uh, as far as this goes here in a second, but for for all of this to make sense and for us to tie up a few loose ends, we need to turn our attention to what's happening in post-World War I Europe. (laughs) When war broke out in Europe in 1914, Italy was originally on the side of the Germans and the Axis powers. Both before and during the war, Italy had operated on the assumption that its lot would be improved after the war, but this wasn't the case. So this disillusion combined with the suffering of many of its people convinced the Italian citizenry to really kind of lose faith in not only in their leaders, but many of their democratic institutions. It also opened the door uh, to one of the all time greatest villains in human history, Benito Mussolini. For his part, Mussolini characterized democracy as inefficient and really even outdated. Upon his rise in Italian politics, he introduced the people to the concept of what he was calling fascismo, the bundling of power. So the way that this goes, according to Mussolini, is under democratic rule, there are just too many voices and there's not enough action. Democracy was messy and it was inefficient. Mussolini's going to argue that Italy needed a stronger governing official that was capable of coming in there and executing these really tough decisions. Strong guy. Uh, need that strong guy to team up with corporate officials who, who really know what's best for the economy so that they can together really restore the economy to build Italy back up again. This is really what he's talking about when he, ca- when he calls uh, fascismo the bundling of power. Now, you and I call that fascism, but uh, another story for another episode one of uh this new governing system's first claims to fame was making the trains run on time now that was something that was never really attained in this era of democracy uh and mussolini's really going to use it to kind of point to his success as a governing official but at the same time he's also going to vow to make these uh so-called men of honor who most Italians probably would have recognized to be criminals bow to the government authority in Rome. but if you're wondering why Mussolini's focusing on Sicily and criminals, it was because they really kind of undermined the fascist control um, not not just in Italy but especially the island in 1924 Mussolini will initiate a campaign to, to really destroy the mafia. And to that end, he's going to kind of rely on this guy, Caesar More, who's going to be named the the prefect of Palermo, and he's going to proclaim that the state must be reestablished in Sicily. In other words, Rome, Italian governing powers coming to the island, and we know that that's not going to be really well received by Sicilians. Mori, for his part, was given absolute power to bring Sicily into compliance, and as far as that goes, he's going to rely heavily on his cabineri, and this is basically going to serve as Mori's personal army, and toward the end, he's just going to go town to town rounding up what he calls suspects, but really this is anybody that has any sort of affiliation with organized crime on the island of Sicily whatsoever. By 1928, uh, Maury is going to make more than 11,000 arrests, and all of these um, uh, uh, suspects are going to be tried en masse. So by 1929, this campaign had more or less run its course, and it resulted in over 1,200 actual arrests and imprisonment. And those that were condemned were paraded in cages like animals. They were humiliated. Others were exiled without even so much as a trial. One of those individuals that is kind of coming into the crosshairs of uh, the Italian government's uh, crackdown is a guy by the name of Salvatore Maranzano. He's going to be one of these guys that will be exiled. Now, it was rumored that Sicilian dons, men of honor, had sent Maranzano to try to kind of gain a foothold in the emerging American mafia, but that can be a little bit of conjecture. Anyway, all the while there are others within the mafia orbit that are uh, fleeing Sicily basically out of fear. And among these individuals are people like Carlo Gambino, Joseph Bonanno, and and these are are not only going to be central figures in the mafia later on, we'll talk about these guys in way more detail, but for right now we need a much clearer picture of Salvatore Maranzano. Upon his arrival uh, to the United States, he's going to settle in Brooklyn, and he's going to quickly establish himself as a part, uh, part, partly legitimate real estate broker and a part underworld bootlegger. He also has interests in prostitution, narcotics, and blackmail. In short, Maranzano's going to become a mover and shaker within New York's underworld pretty quickly upon his arrival. At the same time, he's going to establish himself um, as a neighborhood underworld power. He's also going to assemble a makeshift crew that's going to include future household names like Stefano Magadino, Giuseppe Joe Bonanno, and Carlo Gambino. He's also going to exercise considerable influence over other Italian neighborhood hoodlums, including people like Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello. In any case, Maranzano would play a central role in one of the most important watershed moments in the history of organized crime, the Castellammarese War. Before we dig into the Castellammarese War, I want to establish a few parameters beginning with what the war was not. For example, it was not an effort on behalf of these so-called Young Turks to oust the outdated Mustache peats. Now, in case you're wondering, a Mustache peat was a slight that was used by your younger Italian hoodlums to describe the older, more conservative Sicilian criminal who allegedly refused to think abstractly about criminal enterprises and, more importantly, refused to do business with non-Sicilians. But the war had nothing to do with diversifying the American underworld. So what was the war? It's actually easier to say what it was not, but uh, generally it was mostly a struggle among Italian gangsters for control of New York's rackets. It was known as the Castellamarese War because the, of the Sicilian town Castellamare del Golfo, which was the birthplace of Maranzano, who, as you're going to find out, is going to emerge supreme in this struggle, at least for a time. It was also a struggle for supremacy between Joe Masseria and uh, Maranzano. Most importantly, it led to a complete reshuffling of the mafia structure in the United States. Violence was an inherent aspect of the world of organized crime throughout the Prohibition era, and virtually every major center, Cleveland, Detroit, you name it, saw an uptick in murder. Naturally, there was violence in New York, but it was nowhere near the level of Chicago's beer wars. What would come to be known as the Castellamarese War was more or less a tit-for-tat series of murders that began in August of 1930. And similar to Chicago, the violence did bring a lot of public attention to New York's underworld, and people like Lucky Luciano are going to understand that this is bad for business. Charlie and his cohort were originally allied with Masseria, but they're eventually going to see Joe the Boss as problematic in the long run, even before the outbreak of the war. Luciano still continued working with Lansky and Rothstein, and he was doing very well but he still owed Masseria a cut of his own earnings for protection. By 1929, it was estimated that Luciano was paying $10,000 a week in tribute to Masseria, doing all the work, taking all the risk, which had already landed him behind bars at least once. This tribute is gonna serve as an incentive to kind of betray Masseria. And there were communications between Luciano and Maranzano, And it was decided that Luciano would betray Masseria in exchange for uh, Maranzano ending the war, which again, Luciano saw as a problem that could attract the attention of law enforcement as well as reformers. Luciano eventually set up Masseria by pretending to continue the working relationship. Now, if you want a visual representation of what I'm about to tell you, go check out Boardwalk Empire. But basically, it goes like this. Luciano met Masseria for lunch at the Nuovo Villa Tamero. He is going to excuse himself ostensibly to use the restroom, and shortly thereafter, a team of assassins, uh, reportedly Albert Anastasia, Vino Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Bugsy Siegel, are going to arrive in a car. They're going to enter the restaurant, and they're going to mow down Masseria, who was still at his table, alone, but still at his table. After the deed had been done, they're going to flee the scene in their getaway car, and what this is going to do is it's going to make Maranzano uh, the winner of the war, at least for the moment. As you're going to find out, it's, it's not quite over yet. So shortly after the death of Joe the Boss, a meeting was called by Maranzano to determine the future of New York City's underworld. And it was at this meeting that Maranzano was going to proclaim himself to be Capo de Tutte capi. Boss of bosses, the number one, the decider, the supreme being of the mafia. And this is really going to rub Charlie Lucky the wrong way because in his mind, the struggle for supremacy of New York's underworld was what led to the war in the first place, which which was bad for business. And it was no secret that Luciano opposed this new structure that Marizano was trying to force on New York's underworld. Word soon leaked out that Luciano was taking aim at Maranzano, and for his part, Maranzano was going to reach out to a known Irish assassin, a guy by the name of Vince Mad Dog Call, and the scheme is to take out Luciano. Now, the scheme never came to fruition, but it did make things abundantly clear to Lucky. Luciano had to respond. It had come to light that Maranzano was under the surveillance of the U.S. Immigration Service and random sporadic raids were, were, were not uncommon. These happened to dozens and dozens of immigrant families on a semi-regular basis, especially in places like New York. So on September 10, 1931, IS agents showed up unannounced at Maranzano's office and he welcomed them in. I, again, this is not something that is just lost on him. They, he knows that they're after him, so he, he wants to treat what he thinks are agents well. But as it turns out, these agents were actually assassins hired by Lansky, who are gonna use knives to assassinate Maranzano. And it was the assassination of Salvatore Maranzano that is actually gonna end the Castellamarese War. Upon the death of Maranzano, Luciano is going to call a conference in Chicago to solidify the end of the violence. And bosses from throughout New York, up and down the East Coast, all over the Midwest, and various other locales were invited to attend. And it's at this meeting that Lucky's going to propose a more business-like model, one that operations would run more like a modern-day corporation they had to end the violence. It was bad for business. They had to ensure smoother operations, order, and predictability. And the structure and operations would harken back to the Sicilian model, or at least in ways it would, with one important exception. Instead of a boss of bosses, there would be a commission, sort of like a corporation has a board of trustees and the commission would determine all future courses of action, right down to who lived and who died. This proposed model ensured organization and predictability. Um, it ensured that law enforcement could be kept at bay. Most importantly, it ensured an ordered structure. Territories would be divided up and there would be an agreed-upon turf where local or regional bosses had jurisdiction. And laying out the rules as such is really going to minimize the threat of violence. If you're an out-of-towner, you could do business on someone else's turf, but you had to get permission first. And when or if there was a dispute, everyone agreed that the commission would weigh in on the evidence and make its determination. And the commission's decision was final. Basically, what we're talking about here is the making of the mafia, as you and I would recognize it sort of this medieval system of organized crime that had thrived in Europe, especially Italy and its islands long before the onslaught of Italian immigration to the United States. But the commission was based on a Wall Street model. So instead of a boss of all bosses making decisions, the commission would simply vote on whatever matter was being brought before them. And the local units, that would divide up these territories, those local units would be known as a family, uh, a governing entity. So in the capital of organized crime, we're going to see the emergence of the five families of New York City. Joe Profaci was given a family, given an organization, and this is later going to become known as the Colombo crime family. Vincent Mangano is going to be given a family which will later sort of evolve into what comes to be known as the Gambino crime family Tommy Gigliano is going to be given a family which will eventually evolve into the Lucchese family Joe Bonanno would be one of the few original uh, uh, Heads of family that would eventually bear his own name. It's going to come to be known as the Bonanno family Charlie Lucky as well as his associate, Vito Genovese, are also going to make up the fifth of the five five families, which is eventually going to come to be known as the Genovese crime family. But other major urban industrial centers are going to be recognized as well. There would be a family in places like Philadelphia. Um, I hesitate to say Boston because it's more of a satellite than it was anything else, but let's just call it New England. Scranton, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio, Detroit, Tampa, uh, Florida, New Orleans, Kansas City, as well as Los Angeles. And what's going to come to be known as the Mafia is going to be this blend of Sicilian and Camorre versions of organized crime. (laughs) I hope it makes better sense now uh, how and why I made such an intentional point of outlining the differences between the two models in that episode entitled A Prelude to the Mob. Luciano and company are going to use aspects and concepts from both Italian models when it comes to the modernizing and organizing of crime in the United States. In some cases, these will be overtly Sicilian, and in other cases, it'll be overtly Camorre, but it is a blend of both. Um, In other ways, the emergence of a modern mafia was really just an updated version of the Gilded Age street gang. Luciano was the initial number one figure. Uh, Tammany leader Jimmy Hines is going to provide that political influence that we were talking about that was so central throughout the Gilded Age, and Meyer Lansky was going to be the financial wizard, sort of like the role that AR had played a generation earlier. So as you can see, this mafia that we're talking about here was interethnic, and it was interracial from its onset. Chicago's outfit had as many Irish leaders as it did Italian, and in New York uh, and other black metropolises, people like Bumpy Johnson and uh, other black capos are going to serve in leadership roles throughout throughout this early history. There would be Jews, Irish, and Poles that would hold as much sway within the ranks of the mafia as Italians did. It was just that the structure that was used to organize crime post-1931 was inherently Italian. But to be a boss as in an actual head of a family. You had to be Italian. When Luciano brought the Italian crime lords to Chicago to finalize the commission, it was said that they swore a blood oath of loyalty to the system, and they vowed a code of silence, omerta. It was also said that at this 1931 meeting in Chicago, Lansky sat outside the dining room, but was later brought in and introduced as a highly trusted and very skilled advisor. But before we get into the actual structure of the mafia, I think it would be good and helpful to have a concrete understanding of the operational concept of the mob. And to that end, I think it's very helpful to think of the mafia family like a corporation, issues a franchise. Uh, To quote the movie Goodfellas, being with the crew was a license to steal. It was a license to do anything. But of course it came with a price. So what I want you to do is to think about a pyramid. Uh, What the people at the top of this pyramid brought was protection. They stopped other criminals from ripping off their affiliates by sending muscle to enforce territorial dominion. Uh, They provided vital political connection when and where necessary. They fixed problems with the cops, and you get the idea. What people at the bottom brought were earnings. They robbed, they blackmailed, they distributed products, and they did so with virtual immunity as long as they were with someone. For the privilege of doing business, they paid a tribute to the top echelons of the pyramid, essentially creating a two-way street sort of scenario. But saying you are with someone, but not really being with them, if you know what I mean, it carried risks of consequences. Mafia families protected their name with the same ferocity that modern corporations guard their brands and or their intellectual property. So with respect to the structure of the mafia, at the top you had the boss, the Don, the godfather, the leader of a family. And what this individual was, was a member, a ranking member of the commission. And he commanded his territory with with complete autonomy. He handed down orders in his family pyramid. Underneath the boss was the underboss, the second in command. And this individual would, would fill in for the boss in cases of need, whether, whether this is, you know, an illness, uh, if this individual had to go to prison for whatever reason, they would step in to the void. It was usually a top earner, and, and in some instances, the underboss would be in a position to give advice. Underneath the underboss would be the consigliere. And what this individual was, was basically an advisor. Many times this was an actual lawyer. And this was a strategist, an internal arbitrator, a consultant, a a legal fixer. And underneath the consigliere was the capo regime, or for short, uh, capo. Think think captain. And these people are typically referred to as a made man or made men. But what you're really talking about here is the leader of a crew. And these capos are going to command small bands of hoodlums, which are they're going to provide protection. Now, now these hoodlums we're going to talk about them in a second, but they they they're basically they're basically earners and they're paying a tribute. Everyone's paying a tribute to the boss. The boys, the soldiers, the earners. These were hoodlums with some loose affiliation with the family. And there could be as many as a dozen that were affiliated with any one individual capo and up to 1,200 that were affiliated with an actual boss. Now, I don't want to sound repetitive, but some of this is worth digging into deeper. Being made was more like becoming a franchise owner. Um, you didn't get paid a regular salary, but what you did get what was was a license to do whatever you wanted. That could be theft, it could be extortion, blackmail, drug trafficking, it could be whatever you wanted it to be, but there were all kinds of acceptable ways of quote-unquote earning. Um, Being a made man provided you with a, uh, think of it as a brand name, throughout the community. People knew you were with someone, so to speak. The boss provided political influence, legal resources, and protection from other made men and simply having an affiliation with the family was very very valuable it provided work in things like the gambling industry later on it would provide work in union busting or union backing whoever you happen to do business with it would provide inroads to things like loan sharking when i say it was it was a license to do whatever i really mean to do whatever So to that end, that scene in the movie Goodfellas where Henry Hill's describing the mafia as, I'm paraphrasing here but you get the idea, an FBI for wise guys, that's actually pretty pretty accurate. Speaking of the movie Goodfellas, what Hill describes as a wise guy, basically those are wannabes. They were hoodlums who were trying to impress the capos above them and their goal was to work their way up the ladder and become a capo yourself. High performing wise guys were sometimes given plums. You might become a manager at a club, not not that unsimilar to what happened with Al Capone. Um, and, And when this was the case, this sort of became this mechanism to move up in the world. Those who earned a lot were given more leeway, more special treatment and better assignments. Wise guys kicked up money up the chain of command and the money flowed from the earners to the capos to the bosses. And if you're looking looking for a good example from the world of Hollywood, um, see see Jimmy the Gem from Goodfellas. Um, He's this earner in Paul Vero's crew, and Vero was a capo in the Lucchese organization. Jimmy Burke, his real name, was played by Robert De Niro, and he commanded an enormous amount of power and sway within the organization because he was great for business. Let's go back to the top of the pyramid for a second. Each boss was given absolute reign over his territory and interference within a family from the outside was strictly forbidden. To do business within someone else's territory, the first thing that you needed to get was the okay from that regional boss. Now all of these bosses also had a vote on the commission. If you think of the commission sort of like the United Nations, they were all co-equals. All decisions, even life and death, had to be discussed by the commission. And there's a great example of this in the, if you want to think of them sort of as the peace accords toward the end of the movie, The Godfather. But the structured order, as we've discussed here, is is really bringing the stability, and I would also go so far as to say the longevity, that was desperately lacking throughout most of the prohibition era of organized crime. Simply put, the commission was brilliant, and I mean that in sort of an evil genius sort of way. But the brilliance of the commission was that it gave the mafia staying power. Law enforcement would eventually come to discover that it's not as simple as going after Mr. Big, because every time you took down a Mr. Big, another person stepped up and just sort of replaced him. The commission provided order and a clear structure to ensure profitability. It reigned in the violence. It provided clear-cut rules for who was doing business and where. It eliminated the incentive of becoming boss of bosses because everyone was a co-equal. Everyone had the same level of power in this new structure. Maybe most importantly of all, is that it organized the unorganized and that was always the problem of those pioneers like people like Johnny Torrio. They had a good structure with that cartel in places like Chicago, but what they really lacked was the ability to stop outsiders from from coming in and trying to muscle in on the operation. So what was once the wild west where anybody could kind of jump in, now really resembled a modern day corporation. So, of course, people like Luciano and Lansky are, are, are going to be the stars of this show, but the commission was really the culmination of decades of development within the world of organized crime. Arnold Rothstein, Nucky Johnson, Johnny Torrio, they all helped to lay a foundation. And then we see Luciano and Lansky come along, and they'll tie up some loose ends, and they'll make improvements on this initial structure. It's going to lay the foundation for unlimited success for criminals who are willing to come in and play by the rules and stick to the structure. It was not that other groups were not able to succeed, but it was that the Italian model simply worked better than any other model that we've seen heretofore. Furthermore, American political and economic structures were uniquely suited to kind of complement the model that was established by the commission. I just can't help myself. I've got to give the commission one more compliment when it comes to its evil genius brilliance. In the late 20th and the early 21st centuries, we in America will see modern corporations begin to adopt a structure, maybe even a strategy that was really not that different than the model that was created by Luciano and company in the early 1930s. Nelson Lichtenstein is a historian, and he's written extensively about Walmart, and he's described what he calls a fissured workplace. Walmart merely imports the product from somewhere else. They don't make the product. So any problem that you, as an American consumer, have with labor standards or lack thereof, human rights or lack thereof, Take it up with the producers, and if you want to find them, they're in places like China, Vietnam, Mexico, or Bangladesh. Where they're not is Arkansas, the home state of Walmart. The product lack consumer safety standards, huh? Well, take it up with the producers. I'm not saying that corporate America took a page out of the playbook of organized crime, but the structure of these two models is very, very similar. thanks for joining us here today. Let's roll some credits. C. Alexander Hortis does a great job describing the emergence of the Commission as well as its New York origin, so see The Mob and the City if you want to know more on that. Similarly, Selwyn Robb does a nice job outlining the manner in which the Commission came to be, but even better, he situates it nicely within a national context, so Check out Rob's Five Families for more. I've referenced a few classics here today when it comes to the Mafia and film, and it doesn't get much better than The Godfather. The Godfather is a work of art in and of itself, but you can really get a lot out of how the Mafia is structured and who's in charge of what, so you may find it enjoyable, especially if you watch it in the aftermath of this episode. Similarly, Goodfellas is a story of the mafia told by a foot soldier. I think Martin Scorsese once said he wanted to create a story told by a soldier from what he called Napoleon's Army and Henry Henry Hill fits that description perfectly. Watch Goodfellas and pay attention to how those quote-unquote earners toward the bottom of the pyramid interact with their superiors. And, as always, there's Boardwalk Empire for colorful scenes that depict assassinations and the creation of governing boards, and so, so much more. You may just want to put that on a loop. That's all for right now. I hope you'll join me for the next episode, which is entitled, Get Mr. Big. If you join us, you'll see how government and law enforcement agencies were well aware of the threat posed by organized crime, and in some instances actually made some inroads into squashing it, but you'll also see how resilient the structure of the commission is with respect to the next man up philosophy. Because there is very little outside knowledge as to how the mafia worked, any progress law enforcement made was, at best, short lived. But that's all for right now. Once again, it's been great having you.